for the for the worshiper, church discipline is not a problem at all. Uh, for the worshiper, church discipline is a uh, is a natural thing to purge oneself due to the glory of God. To purge oneself in the presence of God is a is a natural must. I think of the words of Isaiah, who when he found himself in the presence of God, said, "Woe is me." I'm a man who's undone. And he began to uh, recount in his own heart and in his own mind his sin. And he began to purge himself of his sin. Uh, allowing God basically to clean up his life. That's, that's the root of church discipline. That due to the glory of God, due to his, his holiness, we are to be holy just as he is holy. It's, it's really a part of the sanctification process. We're going to finish up this week talking about church discipline. We're in Matthew 18. Go ahead and turn there because I want you to see it. As always, I want you to see it in your Bible. I want you to mark it up in your Bible so that when the time comes that you need this passage, you can go back to it. You'll remember seeing it in your Bible. And uh, maybe it will be helpful to you later on down the road. Last week, uh, we got into it a little bit and we jumped in verse 15 Matthew 18:15 says if your brother sins and I said that immediately it exposes that there is a problem that we have a brother meaning a fellow believer who finds himself in sin and that's the issue in the context here a brother a fellow family member in sin that is the presenting problem now what do we do If your brother sins, go and show him his fault. And we got right into, after the problem, Jesus goes right into what the process for uh, remedying the problem is. And we talked about this process. It's a four-step process. Let me remind you what the process is. Number one, we have to go individually ourselves. Whether the person has sinned against us directly or whether we have witnessed or have account, first-hand account of that sin, we have a responsibility to go ourselves. Remember I told you last week, this is number one place that this whole process breaks down. It goes wrong 90 plus percent of the time on step one because we don't go. And we say for reasons of, well, I'm too compassionate or I just, I'm not a confrontive type person. Whatever the reason, we're afraid of maybe the confrontation itself. We're afraid of the response. For whatever reason, too many of us, we just don't go. Okay? So that is over and above. Where does this process break down? It breaks down right from the start. We've got to go. Imperative language here, Jesus uses. We have to go. We have to address it. We have to confront it. And you remember step one. Step one is that we go on our own and we go privately. That we don't expose it to everybody else who knows. We don't ask for prayer requests around the whole church, around our life group and all that. We go individually and we try and confront that person in a private manner. Text says if, we, if the brother listens, then we've won the brother. We've gained literally a brother. If not, we've got to take it to step two. You remember step two? Step two is that we go and get a couple witnesses. Remember, these witnesses don't have to be witnesses of the sin itself, but they're witnesses to the, net, to the step two encounter, to the step two confrontation, so that by the witnesses of two or three, every word might be justified. That They can witness. They can testify to how you approach them. They can testify to how the person responded. They can testify that step two has taken place. All right? So step two is you take a couple other brothers. Uh, I would suggest you take a couple brothers or sisters that know this person at least. More than that, that don't just know this person, but that love this person 
and desire their well-being, hopefully as you do, as the primary confronter. All right? So find a couple people that you know love this person, that they can go with the same heart that you are going with. All right? So that's step two. If he listens, good. You've gained a brother. If not, what do you do? You've got to go to step three. Now, remember I said this again last week as well, that step one and step two may happen a few times. All right? This is a process, but it's not a one-time deal process that you can't do step one a couple times, I don't think is, uh, is out, of the, out of the realm of what Jesus is talking about here. That if Preston has something that he has to confront me on, he may come to me two or three times before he goes and gets Keith and Radley. Okay? The point where you have to go to the next step of the process is when you know that that step of the process isn't going to work, that the brother's not going to listen. He's not going to receive it. He's not hearing it. It's not... It's not having any effect. And so then you step up the game a little bit and you're going to bring in the two or three fellow brothers or sisters and you're going to go again. If they listen, you've gained them. If not, you've got to take it to the next level. The next level is that you go to the assembly that you are in as believers. For us, that's the church. But in Jesus' day, the church, remember, pre-Pentecost, it wasn't even in effect yet. And so literally he's talking about the assembly of believers. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your extended family. Maybe it's your accountability group. Maybe it's your Bible study group. Maybe it's all the other uh, women who are in your office, who you are Christians in that community together. You have some sort of Christian assembly, some sort of gathering, wherever it may be. Then you take it then to the assembly. You take it to the church. All right. And what that means is not that at this point they are out of the church, but now the whole church or the whole gathering, whatever size it may be, from your uh, three-man accountability group to the church on this level, you bring it to the next level. And all that means is that there are more believers confronting this person and calling this person to repentance. So now you've gone from you calling them to you and a couple friends calling them to now they've got this whole group of believers calling them back. And then we got to the final step of the process last week. And really, it's not the final step, but it is the step of penalty. The problem is that a brother's in sin. The process is fourfold. And in the fourth step, it is really the end of the process when it comes to confrontation on a formal level. The fourth step of the process is that if they've not listened to you, they've not listened to you and a couple friends, they've not listened to you, a couple friends, and now the whole body, the whole assembly that begins to come to them and call for their repentance. What you have to do is... Step four, let's go to it. I'll start back in verse 15 and we'll pick it up. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed or justified. 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And that's step three. And you might have some wisdom here in how much detail you go into. It may be uh, that you can keep it as general as possible with your two or three witnesses and with the general assembly that you bring in on this. You may not have to go into great detail about everything that this person has gotten themselves into. All right? So always try and keep it as generic as possible, but always as clear as possible as well. All right? If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the assembly or tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. You remember I said last week, that in the Jewish mind, those were pretty, uh, pretty extreme examples. But for Jesus, although they were extreme, his point is not that they are to be, um, well, it's not that they're to be 
derogatory terms, if you will. Those are derogatory terms to the common Jew of Jesus' day. They looked at Gentiles as totally, uh, they called them dogs. They were uh, the opposite of what they were as the chosen people of God. All right, And it was natural for them to remain separated from the Gentiles. A tax collector, you remember I said last week, was even worse. Because he was not a Gentile, but he was a Jew who sold himself to the Romans so that he could collect taxes from his fellow Jews. And that was even worse because you're not born a Gentile. This guy was a fellow Jew, but he was, in fact, a traitor. So these two categories of people are, are totally separate from the nation of Israel in their mind. They didn't fellowship with them is the point. And in Jesus' mind, you remember, he, he, he was always going after the Gentile. And he was always uh, giving the common Jews the har- a hard time for rejecting the Gentiles, even the tax collectors. Jesus went after the tax collector. You think of a tax collector that Jesus uh, went after? Anybody? Zacchaeus, yeah. So Jesus loved these men. So it's not that Jesus is saying we need to shun them and put them out and, and count them as the worst. In Jesus' mind, what he's saying here is that the point B, we have to separate ourselves. There has to be this distinction. There comes a point when someone is involved in sin over and over and over again. There's no repentance then we have to begin to treat them as if they were not part of the fellowship. We have to begin to treat them as if they are not part of God's family. Now, they may well be part of God's family, okay? But they're acting as if they're not. Jesus says we need to begin to treat them as if they're not. Why? For the sake that we might gain them. You see, these are always raising the level to try and get this person's attention. How are you going to get a Jew's attention in Jesus' day? You begin to treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector, they're going to start to maybe wake up. And Jesus knows this. And so it's not that we shun them, but it's that we put them in a category where they're separate. They're not in the fellowship. And we're going to treat them as if they are Gentiles or if they are outside of the body. More on that in just a few minutes. So those are the four steps. Those are the four steps of the process. And step four is obviously the penalty. Uh, And by the way... uh, Matthew 18 is not the only place that you see such an extreme penalty at the end of this process. Uh, I could show you in 1 Corinthians 5, it says the same thing. 2 Thessalonians 3 alludes to this. Acts 5 is a great story on this. Deuteronomy 18, Deuteronomy 13. There are a lot of other passages that affirm what Jesus teaches here. So this isn't just a, a singular passage that we pull out of Scripture and we base this church discipline thing on. It's all throughout Scripture. Well, enough on the process and the penalty itself. Let me get to the heart of what you need to know here. And it's really the purpose of why we do this process. The purpose behind this is not negative. The world would have uh, would have you believe and they believe, in fact, that this whole thing of church discipline is a negative shunning type process. When, in fact, it is a very positive and redeeming process. Let me show you why. Uh, Number one, I want to show you the language that Jesus uses here. In verse 15, in the end, it says, if he listens to you, you have, my translation says, won your brother. Literally, that word won is gained. If he listens, you have gained a brother. Now, let me show you why the language here gives us firm foundation to stand on, that this is a positive, redeeming process. This is not a negative process process where we are trying to just exclude people, where we're trying to say, hey, we're all better and you guys who aren't perfect, get out of here. 
It's not that at all. The language here for the word won, or maybe your translation says gained, it's a monetary word. It's the picture of a person finding a treasure that has been lost. It's a picture of great financial gain. It's a picture of digging up a treasure chest. If he listens to you, Jesus says, you have gained this great treasure, this wealth. Do you see the worth that Jesus places on this thing that has gone astray? Just in the language, in that one word alone, Jesus paints this picture that we, when this brother listens and he is redeemed and he comes to repentance, we win. We win the lottery. We win big. It is a wealth to us. And this person, this individual, is to be looked at as a treasure to be gained. Not just the language. Let me show you uh, the context of chapter 18. The whole chapter of 18, we don't have time to go through it in detail, but the whole chapter is a chapter of grace and mercy. If you look back at the beginning of chapter 18, uh, my title says, Rank in the Kingdom. It's the, uh, it's the paragraph there that talks about a child coming to Jesus. And Jesus says, do not, uh, do not keep these children from coming to me. It's a picture of the mercy and the grace of the Father that would allow a child to come. Uh, keep going from there. He goes on to say, you know, if any one of you causes one of these little ones to stumble or to fall or to go astray, Jesus says in pretty harsh language that that would be about the worst thing you can do as a fellow believer. And then go to uh, 12 through 14. I'll read this. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray. Now, you, you think about this. How does this help you with the context here? If any one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If he turns, if it turns out that he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices. He rejoices. Over it more than over the ninety nine which have not gone astray. So it shall. So it is not the will of your father. I'm sorry. So is it not the will of your father who is in who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish? Or literally become useless. Uh, many times, uh, there, there's a couple different interpretations of that passage, that paragraph specifically. Uh, it's often equated to the lost, meaning uh, the non-Christian. I think that in context, it's not talking about the lost in the, in the sense of a non-Christian. I think it's in context talking about the Christian who's gone astray. One of the 99, one of the 100 sheep, not goats, but one of the hundred sheep goes astray and the shepherd goes to find them and redeem them and bring them back. It's a picture of what's going to happen right here next. Jesus says, this is the heart of the father, that he would go after that one who is who has lost its way. And in the very next paragraph, our text today, he says, let me tell you how you're supposed to act. Here's the heart of the father. Now, what should your heart be? And we get this process that he unfolds. Not only that, uh, go to verse 21. The rest of the chapter 18, very familiar passage. And Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Now, you guys know, your teachers always say that there's, there's not a stupid question to be asked, right? I want to tell you, this might be borderline a dumb question. 
If Peter is zoned in here at all, if he knows the context of what Jesus is talking about, if he's getting a clue here, Jesus has, has brought this child up onto his lap. I mean, he's just pouring mercy and grace out on these guys. He said that I'll go after that one who has gone astray. If any one of you causes one of these little ones to get lost or to go astray, be careful. In fact, if one does go astray, here's the process of getting them back. And then you got this guy popping up saying, well, how many times exactly if my brother does offend me? I mean, do I actually have to forgive him? I just imagine Jesus thinking that. You are a legalistic bunch. That you want set numbers and rules. And Jesus is pouring his heart out here. A heart of redemption, a heart of salvation, a heart to bring back that one who has gone astray. You see the context of chapter 18? Not just the language, but all of chapter 18 points to grace and mercy. This is not a negative process, church. This is, in fact, maybe one of the most beautiful processes and the most, uh, most demonstrating processes of love in all of Scripture. That we would do exactly what Jesus does when it comes to us and our sin. Well, uh, Galatians 6 1 says this, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, or literally if he fall into sin, ye who are spiritual, restore such a one. Is that negative language? Is restoration a negative process? No, that's a, that's a beautification process. James 5 19 and 20 says, brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one restore. Him, let him know that he who converteth the sinner from the error of his ways shall save a soul. You see the heart behind this? That word restore literally means it's the word used when talking about mending a fishing net or putting a bone or a joint that has displaced itself, putting it back in its socket. That's the picture here. It's a picture of health. It's a picture of beauty, restoration, salvation. This is a positive Process, not a negative thing, not that we would go around being spiritual police for each other. Number two, under uh, process, it's not just positive, but it's for the purity of the church. It is for the sake of the purity of the church. Jesus is the groom who longs to present a bride without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. We are part of the sanctification process that Jesus leaves us here to continue doing what he was here on earth to do. To purify the church, to purify the bride so that she might be ready on the day that he presents her to the Father, spotless. Jesus was in that business. And now that he has gone back to heaven, he leaves us here and we have a part in doing this. Three ways that purification happens in the church. Through the word, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and through the church itself, purifying itself, purging each other, purifying each other. So the purpose of this is for positive reasons. It's, a, it's for personal reasons. That we're after this individual. That one might not be lost. That might not go astray. It's for the purity of the church. Here's the last reason I'll give you. The purpose is also for our public witness as a church. What do we say to the world when we allow an unrepentant so-called believer to remain within the fellowship, continuing on in their sin. 
What does that communicate to the world? It communicates one or maybe two things. One, it communicates, man, that church is really gracious. What they're really saying is they'll put up with anything. And they'll accept anyone. No matter what they're involved in, no matter how long they've been involved in it. And so no matter what I do, I can go to that church, that church will love me, and I can do whatever I want to do. You see the danger in that? That they begin to misrepresent what we're trying to communicate as a standard of righteousness and holiness. Apart from that, it, uh, it begins to tell them that, um, that we really have no standards at all. And it reflects upon the God who gives us our standards. That if we allow that one to remain, we begin to agree with whatever their sin is. Whether we do in our hearts or not, allowing that person to remain in the fellowship and not being separated says to this world that we are of one accord with sin. That's a great, great danger. It's a serious problem, actually. Um, In 1 Corinthians 5.13 Uh, Paul says that we are to remove this person from our fellowship. And he quotes a passage in 1 Corinthians 5. It's a passage from Deuteronomy 13. And it's a passage in Deuteronomy 13 that talks about a false teacher or a heretic that has found its way into the assembly of God. Now, here's why that's important. Because in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul takes this verse from Deuteronomy and he equates the situation where sin might be residing in the church through an unconfessed, unrepentant believer, he equates it to having heresy or false teaching in the church. And in Deuteronomy, it doesn't deal with it. Uh, it doesn't deal with it with kid hands. It says, get that guy out who is teaching false doctrine. And if you have to kill him. Pretty harsh, right? Paul takes that verse in Deuteronomy and he uses it in 1 Corinthians 5 to say, listen, this is serious. It's just as serious as allowing a false teacher or a heretic to come in and make his way into the church and go and spread that false teaching. It's like a cancer getting inside and it begins to spread and infect. It affects the purity and affects the public witness. It taints everything that goes on inside. Paul says, just like we can't allow false teaching to remain in the church, we've got to get it out of here. He takes that verse and he uses it for when a sinner who is a supposed believer remains in the church. He says, it's got to be that serious. We've got to get it out of there because it in the same way will be like a cancer. It'll get in there and it'll spread and it'll infect the rest of the body. And the world will begin to see it. The disease will present itself eventually where the world will see that we are sick. Well, that's the purpose. Let me give you um, some practical advice. Uh, Incidentally, does this process end at step four? Let me answer that question quickly. Does the process end with the removal of the person from the body? No, it doesn't. Formally, it ends. But remember, how are we to act towards a Gentile or a tax collector? How are we to act towards someone who is outside the body of the children of God? In our case... How are we to act towards the lost, the non-believer? Are we to be separate? Yes. We're to be separate. We're to be like aliens in this world. But do we have a mission to those who are different and separate from us? 
who are not in the family. Yeah, we have a mission. So this removal serves a purpose. It guards the purity of the church. It guards the public reputation of the church. It serves to personally regain that person that when they are removed from the fellowship, they might finally wake up if they are a true believer and say, you know what? I'm on the outside now looking in. Whereas before I was accountable, I was cared for by the other believers. Now I'm on the outside. I'm being treated like a a non-believer. You see that final level again is to wake them up so that they might say, I've got to get back in there. It's like the parent who uh, takes their teenager and after attempt, after attempt, after attempt to get that child to conform to the rules of the household has to say as the, the final great hope that they might get through to that child. What son? Here's twenty dollars. Here's one suitcase with a change of clothes and your toothbrush. You got to go. Ever know anybody who's had to do that? I have. That the parents have gotten to the point where in the very end, in all the love that they could muster, because this is out of love, they have to say to that child, son, we love you, but you can't stay here anymore and continue to live against all the rules of this house. And they send them off, hoping what? Hoping that the world will whoop them in a way that they didn't respond inside the house. And then when they get outside, their eyes will be opened, their hearts will be softened, and they'll say, I've got to get back home. I've got to get back home. Um, by the way, there are those who might say, you know what, I'm just too, I'm just too loving. I'm just too compassionate to confront or to go through this process. Um, listen, as you're beginning to understand this, Please don't miss the fact that true love, true Christian fellowship, love for your fellow believer, means that we confront. That is a part of expressing our love to a fellow believer. Just like a parent would do that with a child. Out of love, we discipline. For those who God loves, He what? He disciplines. Yeah, listen to Leviticus 19.16, it says, Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt surely rebuke thy neighbor and not allow sin upon him. Did you catch that? You shall not hate your brother in your heart. How would I hate my brother in my heart? By not rebuking my neighbor and allowing sin to come upon him. God says that when we do not confront, when we do not rebuke, and we do not keep our brother out of sin... He says, you might as well hate them. Do not hate your brother in your heart. Rebuke him. Help keep him from sin. True love confronts. Amen? Yeah. Um, All right. Here we go. Some practical advice. And I'll wrap up with these. Practical advice on how to do this process. Number one, you may want to pray. Uh, Pray hard before you do it. Pray for you and pray for them. Pray that you'll have the courage and the clarity to do what you need to do. And pray for them that they will have the, uh, the spirit to receive what you, uh, what you confront them about. Number two, be sure to get your facts straight. Very easy to, uh, to maybe misread something, to uh, see something that you thought you saw and you didn't see and you didn't really see what you thought you saw. You know what I'm saying? Yeah? 
Be sure that you have your facts straight as much as possible. But don't let that even stop you, okay? But just be cautious. Make sure you have your facts straight. Sometimes, um, sometimes you might just be wrong, okay? And so that leads me to my third bit of advice. Give the benefit of the doubt when you go to confront. Always give the benefit of the doubt when you confront. What do I mean by that? If I have to confront Brian, hey, Brian, you know, man, I, I saw this and I'm probably wrong. And, and maybe I mistook it. Maybe I, maybe I missed something here. You see what I'm saying? Give the benefit of the doubt because maybe you did. Hopefully you did. Maybe you didn't catch it all. Maybe you misunderstood. Maybe you received it wrong, etc. Right? So always give the benefit of the doubt. Be sure to get the facts straight. You may be wrong. Uh, number three, and we already talked about this, ensure privacy. Ensure privacy. That is your job, Christian. As the confronter, it is your job to keep this thing under wraps. Okay? Uh, number four or five, I forget where I am now. Express your love first. Express your love first. When you go to a brother, if you go uh, harsh, harshly to this brother, you're going to get the knee-jerk reaction. Always, always express your love for them and your concern for them first. Uh, my good friend Tom Hamilton was the best I've ever seen at this. I never, I never realized the guy was confronting me nine times out of, the, out of ten on any, uh, not just on sin, but on uh, challenging me on my thoughts or on direction that I was planning on going, etc. He would always come to me and I would always see that this guy was wanting the best for me. And when I knew that, I had no problem listening to what he had to say. So always show your love first. Uh, Also, be direct. Don't beat around the bush. Just say what you have to say. Be as direct as possible. And then uh, finally, uh, check yourself first. Check yourself first. Uh, If you want a proof text for this, take the log out of your own eye before you confront a brother about the splinter that he has. Right? I mean, that just makes sense. If we've got a problem ourselves, we don't need to be the guy who goes and confronts. Let's get that cleaned up. Let's get that cleaned up. And then we do still need to go, right? But we do have something to do first. Here's the last one. Be wise in your approach. And uh, I've alluded to that in a couple ways. But Proverbs 18:19, one of my favorite passages, says, A brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. And contentions are like the bars of a citadel. A brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city, meaning a fortified city. When you offend a brother... By how you confront them. Maybe your initial words. Bars are going to go up. Walls are going to go up. And it's going to be harder, it says, to win that brother than overtaking a castle or the citadel. You tracking with me? So be wise in your approach. Finally, uh, let me prepare you that if it gets past step one or two, the chances for you being successful in winning this brother or sister or regaining this brother or sister, especially immediately, the percentages of wins go down, unfortunately. Okay? You get past step one or two, you still press on, but just understand that that sin, if you've gone that far, is going to be so deep. If this is, especially if this is a true believer, that sin is going to be so deep that the chances of them coming back and coming back quickly go down drastically. So just be prepared for that. All right? Be prepared. Um, I'm going to stop right there. We're out of time. You'll get more of this as we hit other passages. Let's pray.